Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing and of course, thank you for watching if you are watching on the Facebook live feed. Today I've got Jim O'Toole on who is the CEO of Worcester Warriors. Jim is exactly the sort of person I like to talk to because not only does he have great insight into into rugby and the business of rugby, he also has a tremendous amount of power to wield so his opinions really do mean something. Slides to technical issues, as always. Um, you'll notice on the Facebook feed, it tends to go a bit slow. And also, the recording you're going to get if you're listening to the podcast is going to be substantially different to the recording you're going to get on Facebook Live feed. The reason for that, as you may be experiencing now on Facebook Live, is it's quite jittery. So if this is the podcast version, you're going to find it's going to be a lot clearer and a lot smoother than the Facebook version. Anyway, enough of that chat. Other, other social media stuff, please follow me at Jay Beardmore. Follow this podcast at The Rugby Dungeon. Or, of course, Egg Chasers, which is The Rugby Podcast at... No, it's at Rugby Podcast. At The Rugby Podcast doesn't even exist. So if you want that, go and take it now. None of this, of course, would be possible without our sponsors, Cornerstone and Beer 52. If you're a hipster, you can go straight to Beer 52 right now. Use our code RUGBY20. You get 20% off your first order of beer which will come direct to your door beer 52 basically source all the best beers from the best breweries around uh, around the country and it you know it just arrives directly to your door um work out when your schedule is when you want when you want your beer what sort of beer you want also they've got a bottle a bottle shop online if you want some disgusting salty kiss you can have that or you can have any other beer that you wish to have really really good partners uh, fun guys and they've helped build all of this down here and of course, if you're not a hipster and you want to shave your beard, you can use Cornerstone, uh, a premium razor delivery service. Again, straight to your door, as most delivery services are, uh, are indeed. Cornerstone are not only not only convenient, but they're one of the market leaders, beating likes of Wilkinson Sword, Gillette. From as little as £4 a month, you can have razors delivered directly to your door. I do this. It's a tremendous service, uh, and I recommend that you do too. In addition, you can also have your own hand-engraved shaft. That doesn't make sense. Your own engraved shaft. It's not done by hand, though. Uh, I have JB on mine, but other initials are available. Just use our code at checkout, which is EGG10, or go onto their website forward slash EGGCHASERS. That'll be much appreciated, and you help support this show and everything me, Tim, and Phil do on Egg Chasers as well. Right, let's not wait any longer. Here is my interview. Enjoy it. <laughs> How are you, Jim? I'm very well indeed. Very well. Thanks very much for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So why don't you tell me what your day has entailed so far then as, uh, as a CEO? Ah. <laughs> well, that's the joy of it. No two days are ever the same. Um, it, you're, you have a 360-degree vision of the, the business. And from any one of those 360 degrees, you can have um interesting little challenges and problems and opportunities arise at any given time so whether it is a request from our supporters to um knock down our temporary north stand and have a hotel chain come in build a stand at the front and a hotel at the back because it'll be really convenient for the m5 okay the yeah. idea of the day yesterday um <clears throat> which obviously is something we've already looked at um, not quite right to locate at the back of our north stand, but it is um, 
a project that we have actually done some some research on um, and may revisit in the future. Um, what else? We had a request from followers of our ladies team uh, about having a replica ladies, uh, our Worcester Valkyries range, which is like our men's uh, kit is from Under Armour. Cracking piece of kit. Yeah. So that's one of the challenges of the day. Do we do that? Do we do it on pre-order only? Do we take a risk and buy um, a certain number across a, a certain range of sizes and, and put it in the shop and put it online? So we'll just have a little debate about that. And then um, some interesting work going on with our social inclusion education people on the HITS program, which is our flagship social inclusion program here in Worcester. Sure where we work with an education partner, like all of the other premiership clubs, to uh, provide a base for kids 16 to 18 who have been challenged in the normal school system and at 16 or 18 um, just need a slightly different approach to getting some qualifications, whether it's A-levels, B-techs or related GCSEs. So a program that we're incredibly proud of mm -hmm. and one that's very important to us as a business. Excellent. So a little bit of everything really then. Yeah. Uh, tell, yeah. Tell me, uh, you just mentioned social inclusion program. I imagine <clears throat> that uh, is starting to get a lot easier for people like yourself, Saracens, Newcastle. In fact, not just social inclusion, but actually community engagement in general, because, of course, you can use your stadium so much more frequently now. Yeah. I mean, last weekend we had um, a bit of a first. We had a mixed ability rugby tournament. Um, when I say mixed ability, it covers a whole gamut of people who are slightly overweight, a bit older, to people with Down syndrome and other um, physical and, and mental challenges all playing on the same team. Um, really rewarding program to see that come together. So one of my other meetings today was with our uh, project leader on that, who's now looking at pulling together a Four Nations mixed ability competition with his co colleagues in England, sorry, in, in um, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. So that is there's a little project going on which could be combined with the Four Nations Homeless Rugby Tournament. Okay. Uh, homeless Rugby is another crucial thing, a part of what we do here. <clears throat> but in answer to your broader question about the um, the whole social inclusion and community, we, we separate two sides of it at Worcester. Community is basically community rugby, mm -hmm. where we have um, seven coaches, seven and a half if you include a part-timer, who go out and basically work with clubs and schools. Um, whether it's teaching year two's tag or coaching um, a men's second team on a Sunday on a Saturday, uh, sorry, a Thursday night, on uh, the principles of kicking, rocking, mauling, or lineouts or whatever, sure. we engage with clubs and schools at, at every possible um, level. Why? Because the clubs are people who understand your sport. You don't have to explain the sport to them, and they are therefore potential customers. And the schools uh, provide you with your, your customers and fans of the future. So it makes perfect sense. Short term commercially, because they will come to games, but longer term, because they'll understand the game, they'll have an affinity with your club, and there's more chance of them becoming customers. Excellent. Now, so the other side is our education and social inclusion program. Mm -hmm. We we do a couple of things. We've got a couple of set piece programs that we, we run. Uh, we actually go into schools and teach rugby and other related subjects for, for primary schools mm -hmm. um, and some early secondary schools. Um, and we are a regular feature in, in 27, 28 schools around Worcester, Worcestershire. <clears throat> uh, we then have social inclusion programs which under an overarching campaign called Lead the Way, uh, we've decided to focus on people who are isolated in society. Uh, so classic example, um, young fella, 11 or 12 years of age, has a, a desperate fear of noise, uh, which prevents him going to sports events. So after a couple of visits from his favorite players and some of my colleagues, we finally got him to come to a game last Saturday and came up with a, a, a system whereby uh, he could actually enjoy the rugby and not be frightened by the noise. Oh, which excellent. Was a very rewarding day for the, the, the team behind that. They did a smashing job on it. Out of interest, who are his, who are his favorite players? Sam Betty and Donica O'Callaghan. Oh, good choices yeah. all around. 
Uh, and they were the guys that helped him get across the line as well. Now, tell me if I'm wrong here. Um, I've read up quite a, quite a lot um, a lot about yourself. You've got a his you've got a history in sports. In fact, quite an interesting history in sport, but not necessarily in rugby. Can you just give me a bit about your background and how you en- ended up in Worcester? Yeah, sure. I um, well, long story short, I did a degree in languages, uh, did a postgraduate qualification in tourism marketing. Mm-hmm. Decided that the marketing bit was more fun than the tourism. <laughs> Went to work for the Keith the Keith Prowse Company, ticket agents and corporate hospitality guys, as their first ever graduate management trainee. Um, and was bitten by the um, the concept of sports marketing, but I didn't really have enough experience to get into it. So I went off and did a sales job for a couple of years. And actually, on my wedding day, a friend of mine came up to me and said, "Look, I've started a sponsorship agency. I've got a big project in Scotland. Um, can't send an Englishman up to run it. I need <laughs> an Irishman or a jock. And you're the only Irishman I know in marketing could do the job. So for two years, I was running a big multi-million pound." Uh, sponsorship program, which is now in, nowadays is Tea in the Park in Scotland. It was oh, originally okay. Tenants Live, so I did that in Scotland and Ireland for a couple of years. Um, got fed up traveling all around the British Isles non-stop. Um, ridiculous number of flights and offices in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Belfast, and Dublin, mm. and it just got silly. I spent my whole life on planes and in um, taxis. So. I went to work for Alan Pascoe, the former athlete who at that point had the marketing rights to British athletics, uh, ice skating and swimming, uh, amongst other things. So I ran, was the group account director on the uh, swimming and skating account for TSB and Skate Electric, which were not sports that would have been top of my list, either in terms of knowledge or do do I really want to work in these sports. But I learned a hell of a lot from a a group of really good people who ran uh, multifaceted campaigns across um, a number of um, levels of of the sport um, and cut my teeth. Then went to work for um, a colleague, an old colleague who had set up a, sorry, with an old colleague who uh, we were jointly approached by a PR agency, agency who wanted to run their own sponsorship business. Mm-hmm. Um, we set that up, a company called Scope Sponsorship, great fun, traveling the world doing jazz music and the Royal Shakespeare Company and a few other bits and pieces. So eventually after 10 or 15 years of agency life, uh, we sold a business to WPP in 1999. Um, I was with WPP for six years, which was a really good experience, actually. Again, working up with people like Manchester United, Williams, Ferrari, Vodafone, AIG, mm-hmm. some really big global sponsors and, and rights holders. I decided I wanted to work on the other side of the fence, so I went to become initially commercial director and then chief executive of the World Powerboat Racing Championships. Yes. Which was seven uh, Grand Prix around the world. Um, great sport, great people biggest problem was you couldn't charge people to look out to sea to watch the racing of course um, not i imagine they have they, the same problem like i imagine they have the same problem like the, the red bull air races and all that sort of thing you can't charge people Absolutely. to look at the sky yeah the, the only the only way to make money on it is to create a compelling hospitality proposition that gives you a fantastic base from which to to look out to sea or look up in the sky in that case. So I then had, um, I left that after a couple of years, uh, did, I had my own consultancy, Armstrong Kennedy for a couple of, well, about 18 months, um, was then approached to run a professional sailing series called the World Match Racing Tour as mm-hmm. chief exec on a two year fixed contract. Again, similar concept, selling events to um, marine cities around the world, mm-hmm. uh, which is very exciting, everywhere from San Moritz in Switzerland to, Chicago to uh, Korea, um, Bermuda, Malaysia, really, really interesting, and saw parts of the world that I've never been to before. So that finished, I uh, did a little bit of consultancy for Premier League and a company called MoneyGram. I ran or helped structure their international cricket program initially around the 2010-2020 World Cup. Uh, which then was negotiated up into a global partnership with the ICC in Dubai. And I then was asked to go and do a short-term contract at London Irish as a consultant, which I did for three or four months, and they offered me a job as their commercial director. I'd wanted to get into rugby for some time because I've mostly worked in football and cricket and golf and motorsports. 
Um, my son started playing rugby when he was five. I never played it. Mm-hmm. I never touched a rugby ball until he was five. So you turn up on your first Sunday morning in September 2005, um, and you're thinking, I'll have a cup of coffee and read the Sunday Times, and it's, oh, can you just hold this and put this out and throw these balls around? And yeah. Next thing you know, I was chairman of the rugby club four or five <laughs> years later and got into a community club, Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire. Brilliant club and some great people and learned a hell of a lot, actually, about about rugby from the grassroots side and the, the community side. Um, and it helped me when I went to Irish. Um, so I was there for a while. There was a takeover. Uh, new, new owners came in and the approach came from Worcester. It wasn't quite right the first time. Then the second time when they came, it was the right time for me. So that's how I ended up at Worcester. Okay, so you've basically had this career of doing things like the World Powerboat Championships and traveling around some of the world's great cities. You end up in Worcester, which is a lovely town. Uh, I've mm-hmm. been there. And in one of the, I'd say, less glamorous sports. Uh, what, what, do you think you, what do you think needs doing? to angle rugby and in, and indeed clubs like Worcester to make more attractive propositions to sponsors well it's I guess it, it goes back a stage further than that I, I always say in this sport that all happiness comes from more people coming in through the door okay um, the expression we all, we all use in this industry is bums on seats um, bums on seats are profitable in so many levels and they are at the top of the virtual circle that starts off with more people coming in mm-hmm. equals uh, more sponsorship more hospitality more media promotion more marketing partnerships make more money and you go back to the top and you put it all in again because it's all about increasing the quality of the product now the product consists of two elements there's the the rugby on the pitch mm-hmm. which frankly once the whistle's blown there's nothing you can do about it it's it's down to the guys and the chemistry of the two teams on the day and you can see a horrible game of rugby that you win and you walk away thinking that wasn't very enjoyable but we we got a w and a w is acceptable um, in any terms or conditions in this ultra competitive league that we operate in yeah um and the second side of it is the experience around uh coming to games mm-hmm. now um people there's a glib expression everybody uses which is the match day experience and the match day experience starts when you're reading your newspaper or on the internet or on your phone or whatever, getting ready for the game before you leave home. It's your journey to the ground. It's the, the build-up. It's where you park whether you, or however you get there, whether it's train, bus, park and ride, walk and ride, taxi to the stadium or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then it's you, the entire, the marketing guys would, would call it the customer journey from the minute they set foot on your premises to the minute they leave all of those all of the bits in that two hour three hour experience go towards their definition and understanding of what the the brand experience and the match day experience is and from a chief exec's perspective you plan it all out you give them all the opportunities to have a good time and there's any number of them can go wrong so my ticket didn't work at the turnstile my swipe card didn't work uh, I um, see. There's a queue for beer. Uh, there's a queue for food. Um, there are people in the lounge who shouldn't be in the lounge. Um, I want to be in this lounge with my friends, but I don't want anybody else to be in this lounge with their friends. I want this to be my private <laughs> little club. To The guy in front of me keeps jumping up and down with excitement. Can you please come and have a word and tell him to stop doing so? Um, the lights are too bright. The big screen's too bright. The advertising boards are too bright. And I'm exaggerating now to make the point, but yes, these things all pop up as the, the things that um, can irritate somebody mm-hmm. and just change the needle on whether they've had a good time or not and therefore will speak well or otherwise of your, of your brand. From a business point of view, do you have to make a decision who to prioritise out of the fan who just comes through the turnstile with a pie and a pint and someone who likes to go to corporate? I mean, for my mind, I much prefer the corporate side and the hospitality experience not that that's very fashionable look in relative terms i I don't want to generalize too much yeah the corporate hospitality environment is much easier to control and the experience is much easier to deliver as long as you've got the right people and the right food and drink and the right environment for them okay Mm -hmm. just give them what they paid for give them the experience that they were they were looking for 
and whether you win, lose, or draw, they'll go away thinking, yeah, I enjoyed that. Now, the problem is if you are in G block in our North Stand, if there is a group of guys who insist on jumping up and down every time something exciting happens or who've had a couple of beers and they're having a good time and they're bawling and yelling, um, for some people, that's an irritant. And it's an irritant that they can't control and I can't really control because the flip side of it is that group of guys who are out for a few beers and out with their mates, they are just as their their requirements are just as justifiable mm-hmm. as the slightly older couple who want to sit and watch the game in peace and quiet. So it's like it's a very very broad church of mm. of supporters and customers, and they all have different requirements. And on any given day, or any given match day, I could have um, feedback, whether it's email, letters, phone calls, tweets, Facebook messages, whatever, where a single incident is seen from two diametrically opposite points of view. I can only imagine. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's all part of the game. It's, you know, you have to you have to uh, understand people's um, well requirements from you as a company or uh, as a brand. Okay. Well, just changing tack a bit then. Um, with all that in mind, um, is Worcester currently currently a profitable club? No, it's not. And there are probably only two or three profitable clubs in the in the in Premiership Rugby. Our, our situation is a little bit different in that we are two thirds away through a major um, investment phase mm-hmm. um, on and off the pitch. So we have had actually just comparing numbers over the last couple of years, we've had a substantial increase in our overall spend over the last three years. Yeah. Um, just in, in operating costs salaries and, and uh, uh, backroom costs uh, we have probably had the biggest yeah I think I can say this probably the biggest single um, capital expenditure investment in uh, our resources and infrastructure in the last 18 months since I joined is that in relation uh, to the pitch club. well it's, it's, it was four major projects actually we installed a new um, outdoor 4G pitch which is the old rubber crumb format? Yep. Uh, to give us a pitch that we're, where we knew, because as you know, Worcester is a, um, a flood, afflicted area. Uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, our main training pitch when I arrived was poor, and it was rapid heading towards crisis point. So first thing we did was let's give ourselves, rock solid guarantee that every day of the week there's a pitch that the first team can train on. Mm-hmm. So we went artificial on that. At the same time, we put down a new first team own, first team squad only training grass pitch, the an elite pitch that only the first team will ever uh, run on, and and that gives them a top class facility to train on on the weeks when we are playing on grass on the Saturday. Um, we then the next phase was to. Uh, refurbish completely our indoor training facility which was 20 years old and was if there was such a thing would have been a 1g indoor training pitch yeah plus gym etc so we now have exactly the same uh spec of indoor uh artificial service as we do on the outdoor right plus we put in crowd therapy chambers we put in three new dressing rooms um fully refurbed gym wow. we have an indoor running track we have a sand pit for rehab work we have ice baths that don't contain any water yeah figure that one out uh, we have <laughs> a laser guided sauna wow uh and an indoor what's the word for it now um it's a I can't remember, it's a technical term it's the pool where you the the, the the rugby player gets in the in the uh the big pool yeah and Resistance pull is what I'm looking for. Ah, okay. So, and you change the resistance depending on what their rehab is or their training. So it's either let's go at uh, gentle breaststroke pace or let's race against Mark Spitz. Okay. Uh, so I'm sure you were delighted when you heard that Wales were using cryotherapy chambers in Poland and this is now going to be just another expense for you. Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, the, the, the cryo chamber that we brought in a year ago um, is ours. We use it exclusively. Previously, we used to rent it in um, in the build-up to big games when we specifically when we win the championship. Now we have uh, the ability. If someone has seven bells knocked out of them on a Saturday and has is feeling it on the, on the Monday, mm-hmm. then they can use a cryo, cryo chamber, which which retweaks them 
much more quickly than, than any other form of rehab and they're fighting fit and ready to go. Excellent. So, uh, if you don't mind me asking, how much did all this did all this cost? Well, the next, the, the second piece of it was, uh, sorry, the final piece was the artificial pitch, yeah. the stadium pitch. So I guess the, all of those things, it, it's, it's, it's no secret that we, it was uh, in excess of three million, million pounds. Okay, yeah, so substantial spend. Yeah, and substantial projects as well, with significant project management resource well, attached to them. You were appointed last year, yes, Jim? February 15, yeah. Was one of your targets then to get the club profitable or was that not seen as a viable no no we, we, do, we do and we have a long-term strategic budget mm-hmm. that uh, is dependent on us being in the premiership okay. and preferably higher up the 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 premiership higher up as possible or as high up as possible um we, we don't uh, unlike some mother's day is around the corner Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bobsy said, right, we're going to be top four in four years, five years, six years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, our goal is to be a sustainable premiership business yeah. as well as a sustainable premiership club. So if we have the right infrastructure, resources, human and otherwise in place, then players want to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, where in the past they wouldn't have done because we were unfashionable, to use your word from earlier. And we were also seen as a yo-yo club. So last year we stemmed the yo-yo. And this year, we're trying to be a bit more yo than yo-yo. <laughs> OK. Just on to that then, just linking in with the profitability too, there's talk again of the salary cap going up. Um, I think every six months there must be new stories coming out from all sorts of places saying that they want more and more increases in the salary cap. Where do you, where do you stand yeah. on this? Do you think it's well, OK? I can, t- where I, I can tell exactly what this is. Forget any rumours that, you, that you're reading. It's not contracted. Okay. The salary cap is fixed until the next World Cup. Um, it has been stalled because there was a built-in escalation mm-hmm. in the last agreement um, based on the uh, PRL-RFU agreement. And there were increments over the next couple of years. Uh, it has been agreed that that will be halted and stabilised and the, a little bit of reality will kick in because the salary cap was based around central revenues. Yes. So the monies that you're guaranteed to get uh, through your PRL participation. And uh, it's fine spending 101% of your central revenues on, on player salaries. But the other stuff, what about your marketing? What about your infrastructure development? Um, clubs have to have some leeway to do other things rather than just pay players and agents. Mm. So it was a it was a really wise decision. It's been the the escalation has been halted, and it will stop at seven million over the next four three years. Do you think it should halt at seven million until a certain number of clubs are profitable, or how do you see it going in the future? Or what no, would you? How no, would you like to? Say it? I don't think it's related to clubs' profitability, although that's one of the drivers of it. Mm-hmm. That clubs don't want to, to um, keep um, being in a situation where the, the difference between what you spend and what you generate means that you're losing money. Um, for, for, and for the bulk of clubs, that, that's what it is. Goes back to the, your earlier point about how do you make this this sport more palatable to to customers, and. It is that combination of on and off the pitch experience. Um, there's a little bit in some cities in this country where people will only go and watch a winning team. Yep. Whereas if if you go to Northampton or um, Leicester, for example, they'll turn out 
through thick and thin because it's their city, it's their club. Now, some of the less established clubs, now take us for example, we as as a club, we're actually only twenty years old. Because no although we, we were born out of Worcester RFC, the amateur club that I'm looking at across the roundabout of my window, we are a separate business. And actually, technically, we're a separate club. Right. So they have a history of 121 years. And in reality, we have a history of 20 years. So professional rugby in Worcester was a dream of uh, our initial fu uh, funder. He, managed, he brought it in, uh, established it, and the goals of the, the new owners were to take it to the next level and to make it... It's, it's interesting, you look at some case studies in, in sport over the years where clubs have come from nowhere, gone to the very top, and then were unsustainable and just exploded and disappeared. Yeah. There's a famous case of a guy up in the northwest. There was a team called Colne Dynamos, C-O-L-N-E, uh, Dynamos. Strange enough, I, uh, um, my club is playing Col Colin Nelson in a few weeks, so I know exactly well, what that is. So Col Cole Dynamos had a sugar daddy, I can't remember who he was. He brought in a load of ex-Liverpool uh, Everton players and uh, they shot up through the leagues and suddenly something happened, boom, lights went out, dis Peru, gone off the face of the earth. Uh, similar, similar experience recently closer to home in... Um, National League Three South, I think it was a team called East Grinstead. May may actually even have been Division National League Division Two, mm -hmm. who had a guy who came in and funded everything, was in effect the owner of the club, may sponsor, director of rugby, the whole shit match. There was a falling out, and he left and took everything with him that he brought, and they will not be able to sustain their position, uh, where they were paying players a reasonable amount of money, yeah. National League Two, and full expect them to drop down three, four, five divisions until they find the feet again. Well, would you like to see the salary cap in that case be used as an instrument to create parity throughout the league so we can see, so we can almost get over that culture of we'll only go and see a winning team. So next year it could be Worcester, the year after it could be Sale, who, mm. whoever, it, um, whoever it may be. Or do you prefer it just being used as a financial tool then to help the clubs stay established? Or get well, established? I think it's more about... Uh, Rather than just the club staying established, uh, staying established, it's about parity in terms of what you can spend on on players. Yeah, because the simplest thing in the world, if you you could you could win this league next year, if you give me twenty five million quid, I'll go and buy you the best players in the world, bring all the Toulon squad in, pay them all top top dollar, and you get to receive the Premiership trophy. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you're in a ten thousand seat stadium, that isn't sustainable. Um. And, and the variety of businesses that you have in the Premiership reflects that. So if you look at um, Sarri's very well-funded club, mm -hmm. but they're in a stadium which holds 9,999 people, yeah. which they don't, don't always fill to the brim, by the way. Um, you've got London Irish, we're playing in a 25,000-seater. You've got Bristol with 12,000, 15,000 people in a 27,000-seater, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, Newcastle, right, around about the right size for where they are. Yeah. And we're probably the right size for, for where we are. So I think you're always going to have a number of different animals within the ship. Uh, but as long as you, everybody's playing to, this, to the level playing field of what you can spend on players, then I, I think the principle is a good one. I know some clubs don't. They'd, they'd rather it was a it was an open warfare, as it were. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's a decent principle for for our our Premiership. Yeah, I'm very much in favour of the cap, but only if they sort out the issue of relegation. Worcester are a club that have been through this process a couple of times now. Where do you stand on this? Right. So <laughs> here's the thing about promotion relegation. The problem is then in the spectrum of professional rugby, there are only 13, maximum 14 clubs who could possibly sustain a premiership existence. Yeah. Okay. So the year that we were in the championship, it was the 12th and us and Bristol. Um, there was a moment, and I thought there was the appetite for it, for us and Bristol to be promoted that year for, who was it, London to be relegated yeah. um, and to make it a 14-team professional league. Now, the fact that Welch had a disaster in the season that they were up mitigated against that. 
mm-hmm. uh, because nobody wanted to see them getting spanked 70 points to nil every 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 week because um, they were f- fatally prepared for the Premiership the way they changed their squad and um, all the rest, which is well documented. So I personally think uh, a 14-team league would be a good thing. I think ring fencing for two or three years would be a good thing. Um, and I, th- I, I believe it would do two things. It would allow, it would take the pressure off the teams in the prem that are spending, probably in some cases more than they should be on players and other resources. Mm-hmm. And it would give the teams in the championship who were well enough funded and well enough organised uh, the time to build and to sort themselves out to be a creditable challenger to get into the prem and to and, and to stay. So an example being, um, the, you know, two clubs that I think. Uh, will be in a position to be Premiership clubs over the next couple of years are Leeds and Cornish Pirates. Yep. Once the Pirates get their ground sorted out, I I can really see them being another Exeter, yeah. uh, a powerhouse from the southwest. Uh, they will get the whole of of uh, Cornwall behind them, and um, I think it'll be a, they'll be a power base once they get themselves sorted out um, stadium wise and and with with whatever other finances they need. Um, so. I think that is is a window of opportunity on all fronts. One to let everybody in the prem just calm down, build without the the jeopardy. And, and I know people love the drama, the jeopardy of, of relegation. Like I've, I've been through it. Um, well, nearly went through it twice when I was at London Irish, yeah. where we were second bottom twice. Or, yeah, second bottom twice, um, and or were at least involved in the in the um, relegation battle and in one year it was Worcester the year after it was London Welsh now if you've got a team that's clearly weaker than everybody else then you can sort of breathe a little bit when you're in the premiership um, but if you had that jeopardy taken away for a couple of years on the basis that it wouldn't be forever that yeah. you'd, you'd need to reintroduce it sometime I think that could be a good thing for the sport especially yeah. on the piece of trying to build audiences for the, for the broader um, premiership the other thing as well is when everyone is investing so much in the academies, when will clubs at the bottom of the table like London Irish, Bristol, maybe in previous years yourself, get a chance to play these guys? Actually, as no a, chance. Yeah. Not, not, not unless you've given up the ghost. So, for example, the year, the year that we got relegated, um, Dean Allen... Uh, uh, sorry, Dean, uh, Dean Ryan yeah. looked at his squad yeah. and um, thought, I've got a bunch of guys. He went with a young team, nearly managed to stay up, and then rebuilt his whole squad around that that uh, young team. And many of them stayed with us, and when we came back up, and turned into good Premiership players. So it is um, it's a it's a big it's a a big challenge for clubs near the bottom of the of the league. Are you prepared to take the risk on youngsters when your whole livelihood um, is on it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a couple of things actually. I mean, if you're in a relegation situation, clearly you're not going to want younger talent. The other thing as well is there's no real incentive to keep the youngsters if they become very very good and you're in a salary cap situation because you might not be able to pay over the market rate for a guy that yeah, you have exactly. actually bought through yourself. Exactly. So I think yeah. you can have one, but you can't have both. Mm-hmm. Well, see, that's the classic situation where if you develop uh, young academy talent, and we we have a crop coming through at the moment. You know, we're, we're fully expecting to have five or six academy boys in the England under-20s when it's announced later this week. Yeah. Um, now, those guys will be on academy contracts. They then go into their first professional contract. And actually, having, having developed them for three, four, five, six years, um, those, that first be two years or three years is your only guarantee that you're going to get anything out of them as professional players. Yeah. You know, when, when I was at Irish, we had Marlon Yard who was on a low, low salary uh, in comparison to his English England colleagues uh, in his final year at London Irish, and he went off to significant increase when he went to, to Queen's. That's a classic example of you, you create a good player and you've only got that the length of that first contract to really benefit before the open market gets at them and uh, agents and other clubs um, represent the threat of them leaving. Yeah, and I think it, with the salary cap as well, we're going to see if everyone. This is providing everyone spends up to the salary cap, of course, more and more players leaving because it's not going to be about 
about club loyalty. It's going to be about who's got the most space left in their cap to spend this year. So it, it's going to yeah. be a very, very tricky situation for clubs, particularly those that develop their own talent. No, of course. And listen, it's the same for a player. You know, we, we, we have been in for a, a number of players who would come to us or were able to come to us because we had space in the cap when we came up from the championship, mm-hmm. whereas other clubs that, frankly, probably were a bit more attractive for them in terms of status in the league couldn't afford them yeah. because they didn't have the space and oh. they already had their marquees lined up. Out of interest, are Worcester at their, uh, at their cap limits? No, we're not. Are you close? In fact, are you even allowed to tell me that? We, we have a little, we have a little, a little bit of wiggle room within the cap, um, and we just haven't been able to find the players that we need in certain positions because, you know, you will know that there are certain positions where quality players who meet all of, your, all of the key criteria, which are, are they better than what we've got? Yeah. Are they English qualified? Are they willing to come to us? Are they decent guys with a good character? Um, and can we see them adding value to our, our overall team? You, you meet all of those, being the right uh, position and the right price and the right age, then it's their goal with us. Yeah. Uh, so how, how is your cap structured then? Do you have a, a core spend and then you hold back... Do you hold back some just purely for financial reasons? Or do you hold some back, for instance, like uh, they were saying in Gloucester, that they do it in case the right signing comes up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because people do become available at different key points during the Yeah. Um, everybody has a... Um, uh, what's the word? An injury dispensation fund that you have to have because you're allowed to spend it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You need that because it happens in the sport. People get injured and they're long-term injured and you've got to have somebody in, in a key position. Uh, the other area is you, you may leave a gap in a, a key position thinking, well, let's see what happens after the Southern Hemisphere finish their season. Okay. Let's see if there's anybody who fancies a move up to the north. Uh, um, and is that the move that you made uh, with uh, your scrum half, uh, uh, Hugard? Hugard, Exactly. Right. Exactly, and it was the same with Potheater when he came from Japan. Um, they became available, and we had the money to, to sign them, so we did. Excellent. Uh, so you, will you be looking to repeat that trick this year? We could do. We're, listen, we're always on the, on the lookout, um, and it's, it's that key window's coming up at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, we were deep in negotiations for a Kiwi who was appearing in the... Uh, uh, who opted to go elsewhere... Um, and but it shows that there is a there is a, a market at that time. Okay, let's move on to a different subject because I know time's against us, and you've got a match to watch at three. Um, <clears throat> out of interest, who is playing at three? So our Asa boys, yep. which is the you know the Asa streamers, they are playing Newcastle, whatever Newcastle team is, and it's the um, last of the pre-playoff games, so. They prepare them for the playoffs, they're using our stadium pitch. A reoccurring theme in our conversation has been this idea of long-term planning. Now, Dean Ryan had a five-year plan, which I must admit, in the other podcast, Egg Chasers, I've been a little bit critical of, because I think saying I want five years to achieve certain things with a professional team is like having an inbuilt excuse. I have subsequently revisited that view, bearing in mind of the salary cap and how you need to build through the academies. My question would be, though, when Dean decided to leave after three years rather than five years, why did you continue with Carl Hogg? Or why did you prefer the continuity of Carl Hogg rather than going into the open market and looking for a new director of rugby? Just be careful. We didn't appoint him. He already was appointed. So it's important that you use the right language there. Okay. Carl, Carl was part of our, our succession planning all along. Okay. Um, and if you go back to the, the five-year plan, <laughs> the thing with five-year plans, I wasn't here when it was launched, but I understand completely why that language was used, which was um, you need to set the tone that we're not just going into this season by season. We have a vision and we have objectives. Mm-hmm. And the vision was, the long-term vision was and remains to become a, uh, to be a sustainable premiership club, which produces its own young players combined with, um, 
talent that you buy in from elsewhere, experienced talent, like Francois Hugar, like uh, Fanon Alafia, and Partita. Yeah. Okay? Um, the, some people get bent out of shape when Dean decided they wanted to leave and move on to other things. Um, that was his story. You had a deal with it. Yeah. What that did was it accelerated the succession planning, and in effect, rather than appointing Carl or Nick Johnson, we basically took a, a layer layer of management out um, and let them run with their respective areas. So I understand it then. The idea overall was Dean was going to hand over to Carl eventually, but with Dean departing, you just had to move things two years forward. Yeah, look, the, the goal was for, for when Dean would move on, because he he's always going to move on at some point, yeah. was that Carl, having been head coach, would be in a position to take on greater responsibility. Now, he remains head coach, but he has more responsibility because there's nobody above him. And the buck stops with him on rugby now, yeah. as it does with Nick Johnson on matters performance. In that case, then, are you supplying Carl with more support to fulfil the director of rugby role as well as the head coach role? No, no, just be clear. Yeah. He's doing the head coach job. There is no director of rugby. Ah. So... There's no rugby. Oh, interesting. So, is... In that case, the idea to appoint someone at the end of the year, or are you not even thinking about that right now? Who, who says we need a director of rugby? I don't who know. The, the model we have at the moment uh, isn't sufficient. So you look around the, the uh, premiership, and there are plenty of clubs who have a head coach and no director of rugby. Okay, well, that's a really fair point, actually, and an interesting one, too. So are you looking to change the overall model of the rugby club rather than looking to appoint a direct replacement? I'm interested in doing what's right for us, and this season, the thing that was right for us was to employ these two guys to run the rugby department. Um, and if, if that turns out to be the most successful model for us, mm-hmm. then why wouldn't we keep it? Okay, yeah, I see that point. If you look at some of the, the um, uh, rugby clubs across both codes in the Southern Hemisphere, mm-hmm. they will see that that's the model they want. They have a... Somebody Does this not raise the question of what the point is of a director of rugby anyway? Or are you just going to redistribute the roles or in fact just make some of the roles redundant? No, no, no no redundancy. I don't really understand that question. All we've done, in real simple terms, we have uh, taken out a layer of management. You've also lost a layer of rugby intellect, which of which Dean had a huge dollop. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look around all the, the uh, Prem clubs, everybody's a different structure. Yes. And, you know, some people who, who have the title of DOR are actually head coaches, and a chunk of the DOR responsibility sits with someone else. Um, the Gloucester model is completely different to ours. The Ross model is different to ours. So it's horses for, cl- for courses. I guess the point I'm trying to get at here is that with the intricacies of modern rugby, salary caps, building through the academy, England credits, all that sort of stuff, you're going to need a hybrid of not just a rugby mind who does the day-to-day coaching stuff, but also uh, someone on the board. And you know that is why a director of rugby is so important. Exactly. I mean, if you look at David at Gloucester, mm-hmm. he, I, he's more executive than, than rugby. Oh, yeah, completely. He's the executive in charge of rugby. Under, under Stephen, um, but they've got a completely different model. He, he's got responsibility for areas that uh, a number of people in our club have got responsibility for. Yeah, that's a fair point, I guess. Now, Jim, I am aware that in four minutes' time you do have a game kicking off, so you need to get off and see that. So, last question before you go. How do you see Worcester building over the next couple of years? And for you, what would constitute a successful stint in this role? Success for us will be uh, gradual progress up the league uh, table over the next couple of years. Yeah. Nobody goes, and I don't think anybody has ever gone from uh, being a championship club to being a top four club within two seasons. We need to be realistic in comparing ourselves to squads that are much more mature in their development than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and clubs who, frankly, have got better squads than ours, made up of better players, uh, more experienced players, more international players. Yep. And we just, we have to paddle our own canoe and get there in our own way. So Exeter have done it their way. 
um, gradual progress up. I don't know, one of the most exciting clubs and teams. Uh, all our clubs have been relegated and bounced right back up. In fact, they've gone on to win the Premiership after being relegated. Yep. So it's it's different models. Success for us will be uh, progress towards sustainability, progress towards uh, the north end of the of the Premiership table. I'd say that's 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 what success is going to look like for us. Uh, an increased fan base, bigger audiences, bigger average audiences. Last year we averaged nine thousand and thirty-five for Premiership games. Yeah. Um, if we get nine and a half, ten thousand this year, I'll be happy because there's only so much growth you can have out of a, uh, an existing area. Fantastic. Well, it certainly sounds like Worcester are in excellent hands. Thank you, Jim, for coming on. Thank you for being so candid, and best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you very much indeed. Lovely talking to you. Yeah. Likewise, Jim. Cheers. Huge thanks to Jim for doing that interview. He had a very busy day, so for him to take time out, for him to talk to both myself and all of you guys, um, very, very appreciative of that indeed. Sorry about the sound quality, but that's the issue with Skype. I'm not sure if it's on our side or on his side, but we'll have that cleaned up as soon as we possibly can for our next interview. Talking of which, uh, our next interview is already booked. Sadly, I can't confirm exactly who it is, but trust me, it's going to be kind of a big deal. Until then, follow me on Twitter at jbeardmore, this podcast at The Rugby Dungeon. Remember to go visit our sponsors, Cornerstone and Beer 52. And until then, enjoy your rugby, and I will see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 